Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashley Nasiri, and today we are joined by Dr. C.J. Stimson to discuss value-based healthcare, payment models, and bundling. Dr. Stimson, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Ashley. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest. Dr. Stimson is an assistant professor in the Department of Urology at a busy academic center in the United States. In addition to his clinical role, he serves as a medical director in the Office of Population Health, which is responsible for facilitating his institution's pivot towards value-based healthcare. Finally, Dr. Stimson works at the level of the federal health care payment reform as a senior advisor within the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. In all of these roles, Dr. Stimson works to improve the patient experience through redesigned healthcare delivery and payment models. Dr. Stimson, Let's start with the basics. Can you orient listeners to some of the work that you're specifically working on? Uh, sure. So, you know, thinking about my specific work uh, that I take on on the delivery side is related to bundled payments and trying to redesign the way that specialty care is delivered and paid for. So that's, that's where I focus most of my work right now. So what are the main issues around payment models and um, how did we get to this point within the U.S. healthcare system? You know, historically, healthcare has been paid for on a sort of pay-as-you-provide basis. It's also called fee-for-service. That's the kind of the standard nomenclature. And so as I provide a service, I do kidney, bladder, prostate cancer for each of the clinic visits I do or the operations or the outpatient procedures uh, that I will get paid on a kind of per procedure, per clinic visit basis. And this is often what's referred to as a, a volume-driven payment model, meaning that the more work that I do, the more that I get paid. Uh, and that kind of cuts uh, across the board for everyone, whether you're uh, an otolaryngologist or a urologist or an obstetrician, that's how that works. And the consequence of uh, a payment model like that, where you get paid for all the different things that you deliver, um, is that people tend to deliver more care. Uh, and that's, that's what we've seen historically. Um, is that the healthcare spend uh, increases over time uh, as a consequence of uh, the payment model. And so we've come to a place now uh, where healthcare spending is at an unsustainable place. And this is widely recognized. You know, maybe if we were doing this interview 20 years ago, I'd have to defend that concept that healthcare spending is unsustainable. But I think now we can just kind of say that and move on. Um, and so the question is, why is that happening and how do we do something about it? And this concept of the fee-for-service payment model contributing to that out-of-control spending is one that's really taken hold broadly, not just at Medicare and Medicare uh, as, a, as a purchaser of healthcare, but also for uh, commercial carriers, think of Blue Cross, United, Cygnus, Aetna's, all those, as well as uh, purchasers like employers who are buying healthcare uh, through their uh, insurance companies, they also feel the same way, um, that paying on a fee-for-service basis uh, has really helped drive a lot of the out-of-control spending. 
but I should say that it's not just a, a spending issue. There's a patient experience issue as well. Um, and what happens when you when you pay for care in this way, where the radiologist gets paid, the anesthesiologist gets paid, the surgeon, everyone kind of gets paid separately, the hospital, is that the experience for the patient can end up feeling very uh, fragmented, uncoordinated, and pretty unsatisfying. And so I think that's what we've also seen uh, here recently. And anyone who's maybe been a patient in the healthcare system or helped a patient in the healthcare system uh, understands that that is in fact the case, that it, it is quite an unsatisfying experience. And so creating a payment model that helps bring the different groups together uh, to be more coordinated around what the patient is going through uh, is also an important driver of this transformation. Um, and so we have, as I said, there's a there's a spending issue where if you pay on a fee-for-service basis, spending is going to increase. And then there's a, a patient experience or a quality issue where the quality of the care and the experience that the patients are having um, it leaves something to be desired. Um, and so if we want to solve those kind of spending and experience problems, uh, you have a couple of ways to do it. You can either change uh, how you deliver the care so that it's done in a more coordinated fashion uh, and then figure out a payment model, a way to get paid to support that new delivery. Or you can change how you pay for care that's what Medicare does. They say, we're just going to pay for care differently. And then you watch the market respond, the providers respond, and they'll respond in accordance with their financial interests, of course. So that's that's the transition that when people talk about value transformation, it's um, you know the delivery model is not doing what we want to be doing right now. Uh, and so we are going to uh, come up with a different way of paying for care so that we can get a better delivery experience. Now, obviously, this is a big problem, and any kind of uh, change that we try to implement will require uh, kind of a major overhaul of how our healthcare system operates. Before we start getting into the details of how to even start tackling this issue, who are the main stakeholders uh, involved in this problem of payment models and, and the way that care is delivered? I think most people would uh, identify four categories of stakeholders. Of course, there are the providers, uh, which is what you and I are and the health systems that we work for. So those are our physicians and, and hospitals. Uh, some There's all different kinds of ways those can be organized. As we know, you can have independent group practices of physicians only. You can have physicians who are uh, partnered and work for uh, health systems. They can be uh, for-profit, non-profit, academic, not academic, um, but all of those kind of fit in that provider uh, category. And so those are the people who are really working on delivery. Then you have uh, the patients, of course, uh, who are truly the, the customer, the end user, if you will, of the delivery system that the providers are creating. And the patients are important to distinguish from a couple other groups that I'm going to highlight for you because they are the ones who are having the experience of the care itself. But more often than not, in the way that uh, 
benefit arrangements are done now and health insurance is structured, they don't, they as in patients, they don't assume a lot of the cost of the care uh, they provide. Uh, that is, you know, if it costs $10 to provide, uh, you know, a certain healthcare experience, patients may contribute $2 of that and someone else pays the remainder. And so that's an important way to, to think about patients because yes, they are the end user, but they're not necessarily the ones um, who are responsible for most of the expense of those services that they're consuming. And not to, I'm not trying to say they're not spending a lot of money because, you know, patients certainly are. It's just, it's a, a difference of degree with the, how the remainder of their care is paid for. And so that gets me to the third category of stakeholder, which is purchasers. Um, and and these, these are the folks who are, you know, if it's $10 and two of that is paid for by the patients, they're paying the other $8. Okay. And uh, in this country, you know, in a non-Medicare population, uh, most of those purchasers are employers. And so folks who have insurance through their employer, particularly what's called a self-insured employer, which is an employer who kind of funds their own insurance uh, risk pool, it's those employers who are really on the hook for the spending in this country. And so you can think about, uh, you know, Walmart is an enormous purchaser of healthcare services, General Motors, Boeing, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, like very large companies, Amazon, every, every health system is a, essentially a purchaser of healthcare as well. Um, and so those folks have, uh, even though they're not uh, necessarily the end user, right? Because they're not the patient. They have, uh, they have an enormous stake in the game. And so it's important to, to separate those. Now, Medicare, uh, I would also consider a purchaser of healthcare because uh, they purchase their own healthcare, but they, they also function as what we call the third category, which is a payer. And I think it's important here to highlight that these designations, like one entity can fit in more than one bucket. But payers are those entities that actually support the transaction, the transactional nature of payment, moving from a purchaser to a provider. That's what a payer does. And that category uh, traditionally is what most people think of as commercial carriers or insurance companies. As again, as I said, kind of Blue Cross United, Cigna, Aetna, and so forth. Um, and so payers in this country who are responsible for that transaction, some of them have risk and some of them do not. And what I mean by that is that if you're General Motors and you are funding your own insurance pool, then you are actually purchasing the care. It is your money that is going towards the care, but it's, and I'm making this up, I don't know who manages their, their, uh, health insurance benefits, but if it's Blue Cross, let's say, for General Motors, they're just facilitating the payment transaction. Um, and so th those are the stakeholders. There's there's providers who deliver a care. There's the purchasers who actually pay for it. There's the payers who facilitate the transaction between the provider and the purchaser. And then finally, there's the patient who is the the end user, um, the the ultimate customer, so to speak, for healthcare. 
Great. So thank you for that overview. I think understanding those interactions is critical to moving to the next step, which is designing a new payment model and care delivery models that would address some of the issues that you've outlined at the beginning of our talk. So let's move into kind of some proposed solutions and things that um, we're working on to address these problems. Um, can you describe to us what value-based healthcare is and what the main goals of this delivery model are? Certainly. So uh, value-based healthcare um, is a concept of not just paying for uh, the services alone um, and the services that you receive, but also incorporating the quality of care uh, in the services that you receive. Um, it is in contrast, again, to this concept of fee-for-service payment where, uh, you know, you had a clinic visit, so you pay for the clinic visit, and you had a hospital stay, so you pay for the hospital stay. That's that fee-for-service kind of volume-based model. The value-based model says, yes, we have to pay for the services we utilize, but that payment should be tied to the quality uh, of the care that we receive. You know. Porter uh, kind of famously described this value-based equation in healthcare is uh, value is proportional to the, the quality of the care you receive divided by the cost of the care you receive, meaning that the value of your healthcare goes up as your quality goes up and uh, is inversely proportional to the cost of the care. So it goes up as your cost goes down. And, and so what value really means is you're trying to maximize the quality of the healthcare experience per dollar spent on that healthcare. And that's distinct from fee-for-service where payment is not associated with the quality of care you received. It's purely just based on what care is utilized. So we've kind of talked about some of the downsides of the fee-for-service payment model that currently uh, dominates the healthcare system. And when we think about value-based healthcare, uh, it does not go hand-in-hand with the fee-for-service payment model. But what does seem to uh, align with those values and the ideas behind value-based healthcare is a bundling model. Can you go through what that means and some of the advantages of disadvantages of that type of payment model? Certainly. So bundles is a is an area of payment model or alternative payment models uh, that I've spent a lot of my time working on. And the concept of a bundle is is at a high level, it's fairly straightforward. It is a single payment for a set of services uh, that are related to a single type of care experience. It's often uh, referred to as a bundle payment for an episode of care. I think that is a helpful way to think about this, that if you think about a patient when they have, let's just say, a joint replacement, for example, you know, they are having an episode of care around uh, their joint replacement. Um, and so there is a, a start to that episode. There is a stop to that episode from a duration standpoint. And then there's all the, the services uh, that are included that are related to that episode of care. And so a bundle says, okay, patient, you are going to, in order to 
you know, have a complete episode of care experience uh, around your joint replacement, you're going to need to see, you know, an orthopedic surgeon, an anesthesiologist, there'll be a radiologist involved, there may be a healthcare facility, there may be physical therapy, there could be some uh, follow-up after surgery, including potential readmissions or ER visits. And we recognize that all of those services are part of that episode of care. And so we are going to bring all those services together or bundle them under under a single price. And the reason that you do this is to what we were speaking about before is that if you want the delivery model to perform in a different and better way, then you have to realign the incentives around payment. And, And that is what the bundled payment does. It says, okay, we are going to make one piece, one provider in this episode of care be financially responsible for the not just the, the spending on that care during the episode, but also on the quality of the care during that episode. And by creating a financial incentive for that entity, that provider, whether let's just say it's the orthopedic surgeon, by making them financially responsible for both, you know, the services themselves, but also the outcomes and the experience, well, then that is going to cause a behavior change in that orthopedic surgeon um, such that they will ensure uh, that the patient has a certain type of experience. And so that that's how the bundle payment works. And uh, it's been done uh, at Medicare. The joints is a good example. There's a, a bundle payment called the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement Model, um, which did essentially what I just described. It made hospitals typically the at-risk provider for all the services and experience that uh, a Medicare beneficiary would have related to their joint replacement. And what you see in that is that hospitals change their behavior. Uh, and they changed how they deliver care for joint replacement for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, and so we've seen this actually happen. Um, and so the good part is, as you asked kind of pros and cons, pros is that it, it really does try to align the best care we can deliver with a payment model that will support that care. Um, and so that's really important. The, the challenge of a bundle, there's, there's several, um, but one of them is making sure that, that the folks who are at financial risk, that they don't focus too much on just cutting costs. Uh, in, in the world of bundles, we call it care stenting, which means to withhold otherwise necessary care in order to save money and have better performance on the bundle. You, you still want people to get all the appropriate care that they need to receive. You just want to remove any wasteful or unnecessary care while also delivering the best experience. And so, again, pros are kind of aligning the best care experience with a payment model that will support it. But the one of the downsides potentially is that you've created another incentive which may lead to care stenting. And so you have to be very careful that you're not creating a payment model that will result in people not receiving the care they otherwise need. That does bring up a good point. What are some of the ways you can address that issue and um, make sure that patients are receiving 
the best quality care? Do you develop minimum requirements for certain disease processes, or do you have any other way of incentivizing the the providers outside of you know altruism to do what they can to improve the quality of the care? Yeah, this is this is a great question, Ashley, and it's it's where the quality enterprise really demonstrates most of its value. You want to build quality incentives. Uh, and, and again, I take a very broad definition of quality. It's it's not just like the traditional metrics that you're used to around surgical site infections and readmissions and um, press gainy. It's the, the full complement of quality of care. Like what does it mean to have like the best possible care experience? Um, and so if you can, if you can build measures of quality around your payment model, your bundled payment model, then the idea is that you will help to disincentivize the care stenting that can occur. There are other very technical ways you can do it. Uh, you know, Medicare will monitor the the claims data, which is to say, this is the information that kind of shows us what services are utilized uh, in the, for Medicare beneficiaries. But Medicare can can monitor providers' delivery preferences, like the, how they're taking care of patients, and they can see how it changes from before being involved in a bundled payment to after. And then they can monitor the quality measures and see, you know, did this have uh, an unintended consequence as it relates to the quality of care provided. Uh, because if it did, then there would have to be some sort of um, intervention uh, to ensure that that was no longer the case. But I think the what most folks who are deep in this work would tell you is that it's really the, the quality uh, enterprise that is uh, charged with ensuring that these new types of payment models don't incentivize uh, the wrong kind of behavior. Now, one question that comes to mind when we're talking about bundling is, to what extent do you take this payment model and to what extent do you take value-based healthcare? I think the idea of value-based healthcare, you know, is a nice one in that you're putting emphasis on the important parts of healthcare that drive um, the patient experience and outcomes. But I can also see how developing bundles for certain diseases that are rare or um, uncommon may be challenging or more challenging than developing bundles for procedures that are very common, like joint replacements um, or tonsils, et cetera. So I guess my question is, how do you manage highly specialized care that's not common? Is that something that should also be bundled? Yeah, that's uh, your question spot on, Ashley, because part of the concept of a bundle is that you're taking on risk. Um, and when you take on risk, you are now subject to the what I call the the tyranny of small numbers. And so, if you bundle something in which you don't have a lot of volume, right? Like you're just not seeing a lot of a certain type of patient, then you could have one outlier experience uh, that could really tip your financial performance in the wrong direction and and make it very hard to recover. And so bundling may not be appropriate or feasible for all conditions. And, and I think that even an ardent supporter of bundles like myself recognizes that 
if we're going to truly transition us to a, a value-based footing in this country, it's not going to be entirely on the back of bundled payments. You know, bundles are a nice way to solve value in high volume specialty care. They don't really talk much about primary care at all. Um, and they certainly are going to be uh, challenged to take care of, like you said, kind of orphan conditions or conditions where the volume is just low. Um, and th this is this is probably the most fundamental challenge to the value transformation is does everything fit under a value paradigm? My position on this has evolved as I've gotten deeper into this work and more experience in recognizing that it won't. Not everything will fit a value paradigm, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to push as much under value as we can. Um, what we know in hospital payment, you know, starting in 1983 is that hospitals move from a cost plus payment model uh, to the, the DRG diagnosis related group payment model. And it's that movement was essentially, uh, OK, hospital, tell us what it costs you to take care of this patient and Medicare will pay you a margin on top of that. Moving from that sort of model uh, where you really couldn't lose uh, into a, a DRG model where Medicare now says, okay, for this type of admission, you get X amount of dollars and that's it. And that, that was risk, right? And the approach that was taken and what was recognized is that not all hospitals, not all facilities are going to be able to work on a DRG model and that, you know, maybe it's a critical access hospital or maybe it's cancer hospitals that just deal with cancer patients. Um, not everyone is going to fit kind of in a risk-based portfolio. And so my point in telling you that story is that Medicare, the largest purchaser of healthcare, maybe in the world, is familiar with this, that you don't necessarily have a one size fits all. Um, and so I think that that's the way that value will evolve as well, uh, is that we will apply it broadly and widely as appropriate um, and that we will make exceptions uh, where we need to. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And that seems to be a general trend in all healthcare issues is that there isn't a silver bullet solution for everything um, that needs to be changed. When we talk more practically about bundled payments and delivery models, how do you even go about designing a bundled payment or delivery model? Uh, do you bundle it by disease process, by diagnosis, by procedure? How does that work? Uh, yes to all of the above. Um, <laughs> this is, this is a uh, bundle design is just, I think it's, you know, other than, uh, you know, prostate surgery or uh, doing a cystectomy, it's, it's some of the most fun I have in my professional career. How you decide to construct uh, a bundle is, is highly complex. There are um, procedural based bundles, which, you know, as you can gather, that's for, you know, if you have a total joint replacement, you can build a bundle around that. If you are having, you know, bariatric surgery, uh, you could build a bundle around that. That's, that's one way to do it. Um, an alternative is to do it around a condition where you could say, okay, we're going to build a bundle around uh, in-stage renal disease, or we're going to build a bundle around 
um, you know, congestive heart failure or osteoarthritis. And there are different groups, both Medicare and out in the, the payer world and in the provider world who are taking all of those approaches uh, and kind of experimenting and trying to figure out the best way to do it. Um, and so all of those are happening. Um, but fundamentally, uh, when you build a bundle, I think the first decision you have to decide is, you know, it depends where you are. If you are someone who is purchasing healthcare, then your only lever is to just create new payment rules. Uh, but if you're a provider, uh, then you can actually change your delivery model. Um, and I think this is what a lot of institutions are trying to do is they're saying, you know, we feel like we can take better care of patients in certain diagnoses or procedures, but yet the fee-for-service payment model won't support all the great things that we think we ought to do. And so we'll just completely redesign our delivery model, and then we'll, we'll wrap a bundled payment contract around that and sell it out to the world. Um, and so that that is what we see on the provider side. On the purchaser and payer side, you know, at Medicare, for example, all we can do is is change the payment rules and and watch to see that our uh, our incentives change delivery. So, again, I think there's there's lots of different varieties of bundles, condition based, procedure based, and then some of them can be built from kind of the ground up where you change delivery and find a payment model to match, while others are built from the top down where you change payment and then you kind of wait to see how that impacts the delivery model. So I can see how that plays into Medicare, um, but the private industry is a little bit different. Let's say you've developed a bundled package around a specific surgical procedure, like you said, joint replacements. Can you explain how after you've developed your bundle, how you get that out. Do you sell this bundle directly to purchasers? How does that work? Yes, yeah, so there's there's a couple ways you can do it. You know, you can you can go directly to purchasers, which is uh, often referred to as kind of a direct to employer uh, strategy, where you know you can go to again because we mentioned General Motors already. You can go to General Motors and say, hey, I've got this bundled payment program around uh, total joint replacement will provide you a fixed payment for all the included services and we'll take risk and you just send us all your patients. Um, and that is happening. That kind of relationship exists out in the world where employers are saying, yes, it's in my best interest to do this. And so you have those direct to employer contractual arrangements popping up between providers and purchasers. An alternative way would be to pair up uh, with a, a payer, uh, again, a Blue Cross United, et cetera, um, to sell essentially your bundle to their, their at-risk lives. Um, that is just as viable a model as long as you have a payer on the other side who you know, believes that there's a real value proposition there for them and value to be gained from that relationship. Um, and so you can do it both ways. It can be driven by the, the as you said, like if I'm making a bundle around total joint replacement, it can be driven by me as the provider to either employers or the, or the 
the payers, or it can be driven on the payer side. Um, even the purchasers can sometimes drive these. We've seen that happen. Um, and so it can go in both directions. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, when you're pushing a bundle, you have to be able to demonstrate value for those different stakeholder groups that we delineated before. And I think that that is where this work is really challenging, but also really exciting. Because if you can identify enough waste in the current fee-for-service system, then that waste is your opportunity. That is your value proposition to the patient, to the purchaser, to the payer. And then for the provider, the value proposition is getting to deliver the care in the way that you want um, and maybe removing some of the kind of uh, pain points of fee-for-service medicine around utilization management and prior authorization, pre-certification, those sorts of things. You can remove some of that, those pain points for a provider. And if a provider is good at what they do, then they'll get more volume. And so there's opportunities to make it a win for everyone on, on all the stakeholders. And, and that's what you have to do. That is, that is what any uh, economic transaction really ought to do. And, and this one is really no different. So in my mind, when I think of bundling, I think of a standardized package that is you know, surrounding a procedure or a diagnosis that we would offer patients, purchasers, payers, whomever. How does that balance against personalized care where we're moving towards making different um, packages of care for each individual to meet their specific needs. So for example, let's talk cochlear implants since that's what I'm most familiar with. We have patients who have profound hearing loss who need a cochlear implant for hearing. Um, and so we design a bundle around that. Now, most people will go through that process and get their implant with the appropriate preoperative workup that's pretty standardized and then have, you know, scheduled um, audiologic programming or appointments afterwards. But what about those people who need additional care like genetic testing or speech therapy or additional appointments afterwards, or they have a certain complicated aspect to their surgery? How do you create or how do you fit those people into the bundling model? You've identified a very important point here, which is there is appropriate variation that exists inside of even a condition that would seem to be pretty homogenous group of patients who have severe hearing loss need a cochlear implant. And so it is incumbent on whoever is designing their bundle to understand the full breadth or, if you will, the landscape of all the different patient journeys that could occur inside that bundle. And then the question becomes, is there enough appropriate variation or is the appropriate variation sufficient to warrant what we call risk stratification, which is kind of breaking the bundle up into separate paths for the different groups and, and you know, having different prices accordingly? Or is it enough to uh, put them all into a single category and and not risk stratify them because while there may be variability the variability isn't so great that um, 
that you would tip the risk profile by putting them in under a single price. And so that that is uh, a critical component of the kind of the bundle creation process is uh, this concept of risk stratification and understanding what are the appropriate uh, variations in care that exists and the right way to preserve those appropriate variations. Is it enough to just have a single bundle price where everyone kind of rolls in and it averages out to be fine? Or uh, do you need to have, you know, high risk, low risk, intermediate risk, however you want to define um, your risk stratification? And I imagine you can have um, add-ons to bundles or things that can be purchased in addition to the bundle for specific patients and prices for all that as well. This is a pretty complicated topic. Uh, for our listeners who are interested in learning more about this, or whether it be you know online or in person, do you have any specific resources that you were, would recommend? First of all, there's so many organizations and individuals that have really committed their entire careers and their mission to this value transformation concept. I find that for providers specifically, that the Healthcare Payment Learning Action Network, also called the LAN, the Learning Action Network, HCPLAN, that that group uh, is a, a collection of all the stakeholders, truly, who are interested in transitioning to value. Um, and they have a, a great website with educational materials. They have an annual summit uh, called the Land Summit that happens every fall. Um, and really people who not only understand what value means from a research perspective or a policy perspective or an economic perspective, but folks who understand value from a delivery perspective and from what it means to be um, in front of patients taking care of them and how do you actually implement value on the front lines. Uh, and so I, I think that's that's a, a great uh, group uh, to go to uh, if, you, if anyone is interested in further information on this. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Stimson, it has been an absolute pleasure interviewing you today. Thank you so much for being on our show. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners? Um, well, first, I'd just say thanks for the opportunity to come on. I, I appreciate having the, the chance to present something that I think is critically important uh, moving forward in healthcare and something that I'm very passionate about. My final thoughts for your listeners are healthcare is evolving rapidly. And, and that includes the roles that all these different stakeholders will play uh, moving forward in the future. And if you are someone who, like me, 12-ish years ago as a medical student um, was thinking, I'm really interested in this other work, in these other things, uh, I would encourage you to pursue them. I think that the future of healthcare as it evolves, it needs providers who are excellent clinicians and committed with all of their time to their clinical work, but it also needs providers um, who understand kind of the, the broader landscape of healthcare and where it's going. And I will tell you, you can make a career out of that. 
and there are people who will value that and will demonstrate to you that they think that is valuable. Um, and so if you're one of those people out there who's listening to this, um, thinking, how do I make this work? There are ways and we need you. And I would uh, encourage you to, to chase down those interests uh, and you can make them a big part of what you do and make a great impact as a result. Thanks, Dr. Stimson. Obviously, I agree with that uh, as, you know, I feel like I've had a similar experience. Well, folks, that about wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.